have your Bibles with you, your Old Testament. I'd like for you to be turning to the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 18. We're going to talk about personal responsibility this morning in the Bible class period. I'll look forward to talking with you about Ezekiel in just a moment. I've anticipated this meeting for uh, some time, and uh, I'm delighted to be here. Last night with Bob and Terry, we were talking about lots of connections to this. I finally decided that uh, I am connected in one way or another with so many of you, I probably cannot tell any personal story at all. There's too many connections here, but I'm really glad to be here. The South Alabama folks that are here today are very dear to my heart. I grew up in Dothan, Alabama, and uh, lived there all of my life until I went away to college. And great deal of affection for that part of the state and for the folks who are from there. I appreciate you so much. My parents in the last uh, the last uh, <clears throat> quarter of their lives left Dothan and moved to the Birmingham area, to the Gardendale area. My dad died about 10 years ago. My mom uh, is still living. Uh, she uh, struggles with uh, dementia issues because of Alzheimer's, but her birthday is this week, and I'm glad to be down here. So uh, some of us are going to get together with her. Uh, she won't know us, but we know her, and uh, it'll be good for us to be together there. It's always good for family to be together. <clears throat> it's good for God's family to be together on the first day of the week. And uh, I hope that the things that we will study together this week will be helpful and profitable to you. I, I want to tell you, nobody has tipped me off in any way about anything I'm going to say this week. You know that uh, Gary and Mary are related to me. It's not their fault, so don't hold them responsible. They did not tell me anything to say. You know that I've known Bob for a long, long time. He did not tell me anything to say. Uh, I, I say that because a, a lot of times you go somewhere and somebody thinks, he was talking directly to me. That's the Lord. It's, it's not me because I, I don't know anything. And no one asked me to talk on anything in particular. In fact, Bob left it wide open for me to... Uh, to pick my topic. So this morning we're going to talk about personal responsibility. In the next hour, we're going to talk about, uh, I don't even remember the name of the sermon. I stand, I stand amazed. We're going to talk about our attitude toward God and worship. What an awesome God we worship when we come together and the attitude of reverence that we ought to bring to worship. This evening, uh, why serve God? And we're going to be talking about the challenge of faith, uh, especially when life gets dark and difficult and painful and you've done what's right and life is not going well and you wonder what's the point. So that's, that's going to be our discussion tonight. That sounds very dark, doesn't it? Actually, it's going to end very well, so... It'll be okay. But I hope you can come back and be with us at 5 o'clock. Well, let's start in Ezekiel uh, chapter 18 this morning. But before we get there, just a, in principle, in, uh, in Romans chapter 14, <clears throat> Romans chapter 14, the Apostle Paul makes this observation in verse number 12. And he's talking about the problem 
of the strong and the weak in the same congregation trying to get along, but each one uh, having his own convictions and bringing his own ideas and thoughts uh, into the group. And uh, they're not all alike, and especially because some of those were Gentiles and some of those were Jews as they came into the body of Christ to become one together. But wow, you talk about some cultural clashes. You think the Auburn, Alabama thing is tough. This was really serious. And the Apostle Paul said in Romans 14 and verse 12, you need to remember this, he said, each one of us shall give account of himself to God. Each one of us will give account of himself to God. You need to let that passage be emblazoned in your mind, and particularly this morning uh, as we study together. Each one of us shall give account of himself to God. When we stand before God, we'll stand there one at a time. It will be an individual, personal Judgment. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, we're going to be in Ezekiel chapter 18 this morning. Just a little bit of background here. You know that when God made the promises to Abraham that he was going to give to him the land as he stood in Shechem and he was looking all around and God said, I'm going to give you this land. He said, well, I'm not, you're not exactly going to get it in your lifetime, but... You know, your kids will get it. Well, it won't exactly be your kids, but, you know, after about 400 years, uh, 430 to be exact, they will come back into the land. And so Abraham died. You know that Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had the 12 boys. The brother sold Joseph into Egypt. It ended up by the providence of God. Uh, that Joseph, the famine came and the brothers came down to buy grain and Joseph moved all of his brothers to Egypt and they were preserved uh, as a family unit, isolated in the land of Goshen. The bloodline remained pure and some 430 years later now they're crying out to God to be delivered because uh, Joseph had died, that Pharaoh had died, another Pharaoh had come along that didn't know Joseph and didn't have appreciation for him. They were being treated like uh, servants and slaves and they were being oppressed. And God heard their cries and he sent Moses to them and Moses went and he, uh, you know the story of Moses. And he finally, after the ten plagues, he leads the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, across the Red Sea, into the Sinai wilderness, about 1445 B.C. You remember that the children of Israel had some uh, attitude problems along the way. And God had to deal with that on repeated occasions. And finally, when the spies went into the land and came back and 10 of the 12 spies said, no way, we cannot take this land. God said, that's it. That's it. I'm going to give you 40 years to think about this. And everyone above the age of 21 is going to die. Save Joshua and Caleb. And so in 1405 B.C., they crossed over the Jordan River and they began the conquest of the land. And from 1405 to 1050 B.C. was the period of the judges. In 1050 B.C., when Samuel is the last judge, the people said, we don't want, we don't want you, uh, your boys to be judges over us. 
we've seen your boys. And besides that, we want a king so that we can be like the nations around us. And Samuel got his feelings hurt because they talked bad about his kids. But you don't like anybody talking bad about your kids. I don't like anybody talking bad about my kids. But he took it personally and he said, they've rejected me. And he's walking around moping and God said, get over it. This is not about you. May I say something to you this morning? This is no extra charge for this observation, but... So many things in life that we get upset about are not about us. And we need to get over it and see it for what it is. God said, this is all about me. I am their king. You're not the one being rejected here, big boy. I am. In 1050 B.C., God gave them a king. They wanted a king. God gave them a king. He said, you'll be sorry for the day you ever asked for a king, but... I I will give you one. And Saul became the first king. And Saul was king from 1050 until 1010. And when Saul died in 1010, David becomes king from 1010 until 970 B.C. In 970 B.C., when David died, Solomon became king. And Solomon from 970 to 931 B.C. And when Solomon died, the kingdom divided. And Jeroboam immediately took the northern kingdom into apostasy, into false worship. And they didn't last very long, some 200 years, because in 722, 721 B.C., the Assyrians marched against the northern kingdom, and that was it. They were taken, they were obliterated, they were expatriated, they would never be a nation again. The southern kingdom of Judah was sitting to the south, looking at them, scoffing at them, laughing at them. They themselves had been at war with the northern kingdom. And the prophets were rising up and saying, wake up, pay attention. If you don't change, if you don't repent, judgment is coming to your house also. They didn't believe it. They didn't believe it. Isaiah is prophesying around 730 B.C. to about 680 B.C. He's telling them the same thing. Judgment is coming to the south. They didn't didn't believe it. About 630 B.C., Zephaniah begins prophesying against Jerusalem. It's just a few years later in 627 B.C. that Jeremiah begins prophesying. Jeremiah was, you remember Jeremiah, he's called the weeping prophet. He was the preacher in Jerusalem for years and years and years. And, And may I say that the people, generally speaking, they just hated his preaching. I mean, they loathed his preaching. He was a he was a preacher like like many of us, you know, he had one sermon, he retitled it and just preached it over and over again. He preached doom, gloom, and destruction. Repent, judgment is coming. And the people, they didn't want to hear that. They, they didn't want to hear that judgment was coming to them. They did not want to hear that God was going to judge them for their sins. They didn't want to hear that they needed to change their lives. They didn't want to hear that. And over and over again, Jeremiah was declaring to them the coming judgment of God. There were false prophets popping up all over the place. And they were saying things like, peace and safety, peace and safety. Those were the guys that could get a crowd. Everybody liked their preaching. 
Jeremiah, you remember in Jeremiah chapter 20, he complained to God about the people's attitude toward him. He said, these people are sick of me. They're sick of my prayer. I'm sick of my preaching. He said, I, I, I'm to a point where I, I, I tell myself, I can't preach this anymore. And then he said, uh, what is it? Jeremiah 20 and about verse 7. He said, every time I tell myself this, every time I tell myself this, your, bird, your word, it, it wells up inside of me. It burns like fire within my bones. I cannot but preach it. So Jeremiah is giving it to them. 630, 627 B.C., Zephaniah is prophesying against Jerusalem. Nahum stands up and begins preaching during this. This was a great period of preaching. Nahum begins preaching. He's preaching against Nineveh. You know, Nineveh was the world power. The Assyrians, man, they were mighty. And Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Invincible and indestructible in their own mind. Nahum stood up and said something like this. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. You remember that? And everybody said, he's crazy. That wall is not coming down. The wall came down. I'll tell you what was even a greater statement than that. Nahum stood up and he said, Nineveh's coming down. And in 612 B.C., Nineveh came down because <clears throat> the Babylonians were marching through the world. It was during this same period of time <clears throat> that God is preparing young men to serve Him. Do you know that then in 606 B.C., somewhere in that period, 606-605 B.C., just a few years later, after Nineveh has fallen, the Babylonians are on the march. Nebuchadnezzar's boys are taking over the world. They show up at Jerusalem, knocking on the gate. 606, 605 B.C., we're in the book of Daniel now. And <clears throat> during this period, Ezekiel's living during the period of Zephaniah, Jeremiah, Nahum. But that's not all. When Nebuchadnezzar's boys showed up in Jerusalem, they, they, weren't, they weren't there to just destroy the city, to annihilate the people. They were looking for a few good men, like a marine trip. Just looking for a few good men. And, and they wanted the best and the brightest, the prettiest, the most likely to succeed you know, folks like us. They, they want folks like us. They, and so they went to the Blue Bloods, <clears throat> and they took the best looking, the best educated, the most promising young men. Now, they did that for two reasons. They're, they're going to take them back to Babylon and put them in the king's prep school. They're being prepped to serve in the court of the king, and the king wanted the very best. But they also took these regal young men because they didn't want any trouble from these Hebrews back in Jerusalem. And if they had the best and the brightest of their young men in Babylon, they would think twice before they were making trouble down there in Jerusalem because their boys were in Babylon. They didn't want to see body parts being shipped back to them. 
It was insurance as well as service. So Daniel and his friends end up in the palace. They're going to get three years of prep school, and then they stand before the king, and they're going to get government jobs. Civil service. And they're going to do well. During that time, during that time, Ezekiel was 17 years old when Daniel and his friends were expatriated. I don't know what Ezekiel was thinking. I don't know what his mama told him. But I will tell you, just a few years later, when Ezekiel was 25 years old, Nebuchadnezzar's boys came back. And this time, when Nebuchadnezzar's boys came back in 597 B.C., they they weren't looking for a few good men. They took 10,000 exiles this time, including Ezekiel. So, I, I want to tell you too, they did not get some cushy prep school uh, experience in the palace for three years and then serve in the court of the king in a cushy government job. They were sent to a refugee camp. 20 miles south on the Kibar River, uh, south of Babylon. And they're going to be in this camp for the next number of years until the Edict of Cyrus in 536 when they get to go home. But that's going to be their lot. So I want you to understand what's going on here. You had Zephaniah prophesying against Jerusalem. Then Jeremiah began his prophecies against Jerusalem. Then you had Nahum saying that Nineveh was going to fall, and it did, and the Babylonians now have risen to power. Then you have Nebuchadnezzar taking Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah back to Babylon to serve in the court. So you have Jeremiah prophesying in Jerusalem. You have Daniel prophesying in Babylon. And now you have Ezekiel in the refugee camp on the river Kibar, 20 miles south of Babylon, with 10,000 of his best friends who are whining and whining and whining every single day. And and so in 597, when they got there, when Ezekiel was 25 years old, God didn't say anything to him, nor when he was 26, 27, 28, or 29 years old, but when he was 30 years old in 592 B.C., God called Ezekiel to bear his word to the people. And we have the book that he wrote. The book of Ezekiel is divided into three sections primarily. Section uh, Chapters 1 through 24 constitute this section. While the people are still in their minds, they're still in rebellion. This is the period, chapters 1 through 24, this is the period prior to 586 B.C. That's a key year because that's when the third and final invasion of the Babylonians against Jerusalem, and Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. And the Jews are going to change their mind about what's going on. But between 597 and 586, during that period of time, that's those first 24 chapters. And Ezekiel's task at that time is to take these whining, complaining, uh, obstinate and apostate people and, and try to help them understand While they're begging to go back home, they think this is going to be short-lived. The prophet said, yet two years and the captivity will return. The false prophet said that. Ezekiel is standing up and saying to them, you're not going home. 
You don't want to go home. It's not what you think back there. The glory of God has departed from Jerusalem. They didn't believe it, but it was true. In chapters 25 through 32, you have an interlude. And in that interlude, he addresses all the nations around. You remember that. One by one. Because these nations hated hated the Jews. Anti-Semitism is nothing new. It's been around a long time. They hated the Jews. And every time, for years, they had wanted the Jews destroyed. And it seemed like every time they were almost destroyed, a miracle would happen. And, you know, like 185 Assyri- 1,000 Assyrians would die in one night. And, and, and so they were waiting and waiting and waiting for generations for the Jews to get their due. And finally, the Babylonians have taken them and they have broken down the gate and burned down the walls and they have destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. And the world is rejoicing and nation by nation, God is calling them out and he's saying, hey, don't laugh too loud. Don't applaud too long. Judgment's coming to your house, too. And then in chapter 33, Ezekiel chapter 33 is the pivotal chapter in the book. It's where it turns. And and chapter 33, and I think about verse 20, somewhere around there. The messenger shows up at the refugee camp, and he's bringing a message to Ezekiel. the, the people have been, we want to go home. Just, oh, don't worry. It's not going to be long. We're going back. We're going back home. The prophet said two years. We're going back. And no, Jeremiah did not say two years. Jeremiah said 70 years. These people just don't get it. And Ezekiel said, the glory of God is gone from that place. They don't get it. Now they get it. The message comes. The city is smitten. It has fallen. It's over. And now the people are depressed. In Ezekiel chapter 34 through 48, it's the third and final section of the book. And that's the Messianic section where Ezekiel is saying, Get your head up. Heads up, eyes forward. Don't you be sad. Don't you be depressed. God is sending a king and he is establishing a kingdom that's going to make this look like nothing. That was the messianic hope. Now, Ezekiel chapter 18 falls in the middle of the first section. It's in the section where the people are still obstinate. You remember that? Where they're still, this is before Ezekiel 33. In Ezekiel chapter 18, it's still this period of time between 597 and 586. The temple hasn't been destroyed yet. and The city hasn't been completely demolished. These people still want to go home. And Ezekiel's telling them, you don't want to go home. You better be glad you're here. It's not going to be good for the folks that are there. Well, in Ezekiel chapter 18... During this period of obstinance of the people. Over and over again, God has given giving visions to Ezekiel. Visions that describe the glory of God departing from his people. And he's also giving sermons to Ezekiel to preach to them. Ezekiel chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. God said to Ezekiel, what do you mean that 
You continue to use this proverb in the land of Israel. The, the burden of the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel again saying, What do you mean that you continue to use this proverb in the land of Israel saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, therefore the children's teeth are set on edge. God is saying to his people, What do you mean walking around saying that to each other over and over again? Well, you know, the fathers ate sour grapes. That's why the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, saith the Lord Jehovah, you shall not have occasion to use this proverb in the land of Israel anymore. Behold, all souls are mine. As the soul of the father, so also the soul of the son is mine. And the soul that sins, it shall die. Wow. What a strange thing. God is obviously angry. And his patience is getting short with these people. And he's saying, what do you mean, we would say today, what are you thinking? Walking around saying to each other, well, the fathers ate the sour grapes. That's why the children's teeth are set. What are you thinking? 10,000 exiles. Taken out of your, expatriated to a refugee camp in a foreign, and you go around saying that. What are you thinking? What do you think the, what do you think the guys back home are saying? Oh, really? Who's preaching all at the same time? Zephaniah? Nahum? Habakkuk? How did I forget Habakkuk? Habakkuk, my favorite minor prophet who's lifting up his eyes to God in his prophecy, and he's saying to God, I know you are God, and I know you're a righteous God, but I want to tell you, in all honesty, Habakkuk said to God, I don't get it. I do not understand. I do not understand this. How can a righteous, holy God look at this sinful, decadent people, and you're not doing anything? I don't get it. I just don't get it. And God said to Habakkuk, come stand right here, big boy, and let me rearrange your thinking. Even as we speak, the Chaldeans are coming. Don't ever think that because you don't see me doing anything, it means that I'm not doing anything. Let me tell you right now, I'm doing my job. We'll come back to that in the lesson tonight actually. Ezekiel is saying to these, what do you mean using this proverb? Back in Jerusalem, you know what they were going around saying to each other? The same thing. Same proverb. The fathers ate the sour grapes. That's when the children's teeth are set on edge. You know what God said? God said, I'm not hearing that anymore. Done. Finished. Don't say it again. What were they saying? They said, well, the fathers ate the sour grapes. That's why the... Tr-. Listen, th- they were not denying that they were a mess. They knew they were a mess. They were not denying that they had practiced idolatry, that they had been apostate, that they were in moral and spiritual decadence, that they had violated the commands, that they had broken covenant with God. They were not denying any of that. The problem was... Nobody wanted to accept the responsibility for it. It's not our fault. 
We can't help it. We're a mess. We know we're a mess. We, we did wrong. This is the way we're living. It's not right. But what can we do? The father, our, our parents, our grand, they're the ones that brought the idols in. They're the ones that made these treaties with these. It's not our fault. I mean, we, we, can't, we can't do anything. We can't change anything. We, we don't have a choice in there. This is just the way. And God said, stop it. I'm not listening to that anymore. Get over this business of blaming your parents for the mess that you have in your own life. Grow up. And let me tell you something God said. In my house, every person is responsible for himself. So, in, or, in order to make that point, he's not going to let them spend the rest of their lives walking around excusing themselves for the mess of their lives, blaming their parents, and their grandparents, and the prophets, and the preachers, and the priests. So, in order to punctuate this, he tells a story of three generations to them. And it's an amazing story. An amazing story that he tells. The first generation, I, I, I call this the grandfather, the father, and the son. You can call it whatever you want. Starting at verse number 5. If a man be just, he's going to start with, this is the first generation. We'll call him the grandfather. And this is a good man. He's a righteous man. But I want you to listen to what God says about this righteous man. If a man be just, he does what is lawful and right. He has not eaten upon the mountains, nor has he lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel. Let, let me say something about eating upon the mountains. That was a euphemistic expression, to eat upon the mountains. In, in the practice of idolatry, of paganism, there was this idea, not only in the Middle East, but in other parts of the world as well, that the higher up you go the closer to the gods you are. And so when they built their altars and their shrines and their temples, they generally went to the highest place in the area. And the altar or the shrine or the temple then would be on the highest point. And from wherever you were in that whole region, you could see the temple. You could see the shrine. You could see the altar. You could see the smoke going up to the gods. The expression, eating upon the mountains, just became a euphemistic expression for practicing idolatry. Because when you would go to the temple to sacrifice, you would offer burnt offerings. Part would be burnt in the altar, the other part roasted, and you would eat and in that way commune with the gods. And So eating upon the mountains... A euphemistic expression for practicing idolatry. And this is what Ezekiel is saying about this man. He, he did not practice idolatry. He did not so much as lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel. In other words, Ezekiel said he didn't practice idolatry. He would not even look at an idol. And he kept the law. And so 
He didn't come near to a woman in impurity. He didn't defile his neighbor's wife. He didn't wrong any man. He restored to the dead or his place. This was a good man. He was a just man. He lived by the law that Moses had given that was part of the covenant of the people with God. And so God says in verse 9, He has walked in my statutes. He has kept mine ordinances to deal truly. He is just. He shall surely live, saith the Lord. Don't miss that. God said of this first man, he was a just, righteous man. Okay? Because we're coming up on the difficult part here. Verse 10. If he beget a son, so when the grandfather has the son, now we're to the second generation, this is the father. If he beget a son that is a robber, a shedder of blood, And he doeth any one of these things. He does not do his duties, but he has eaten upon the mountains. He has defiled his neighbor's wife. He has wronged the poor and needy. He's taken by robbery. He didn't restore the pledge. He lifted up his eyes to idols. He's committed abomination. He's given forth upon interest and has taken increase. Shall he then live? He shall not live. He has done all of these abominations. He shall surely die and his blood shall be upon him. Second generation. Let me tell you something. There's one of the greatest enigmas in life that a righteous man can have a child who comes of age and chooses to be unrighteous. Somebody says, well, I'll tell you right now, if his parents had done their job right, he would not have turned out like God said his dad was a just man. His boy, when he came of age, chose to do wrong. Now, God said, what am I going to do with him? I'm going to say, well, you know, you are a mess, boy. But your daddy was a good man, so I'm going to give you a pass. Go on. That is not what God said. He said, I don't care who your daddy is. You have done all of these abominations. You shall surely die. Did you get that? The reason that's important is because now we're to the third generation. You see, the Jews, they understood. that These Jews in exile, they understood that second generation because that's what they're whining about. Our fathers ate the sour grapes. Yeah, your fathers did. But the unrighteous man... Verse 14, you see, we had the grandfather, the father, and the son. The unrighteous man in verse 14 now begets a son. Now we're to the third generation. He sees all of his father's sins that he has done. And he fears, and he does not do such like. He has not eaten upon the mountains. He has not lifted up his eyes to the idol. Listen to me, folks. This boy, as he was growing up, he had a father who was as wicked as he could be. And he looked at his daddy and he said, I'll tell you one thing. When I grow up, I am not going to live like that man. And when he grew up, he decided he was going to live like his grandfather and not like his father. And now he comes of age and God says, now, what am I going to do with him? Verses 17 and 18. What am I going to do with him? He comes from a wicked father. The fathers ate the sour grapes. Oh, he's a mess. He's going to be a mess. I may well just go ahead and kill him. No, his, his father notwithstanding, this boy has done what is right. 
He is just. And he will surely live. I don't care what his father did. God said, folks, this is what I'm saying to you. Verse 20. This is what I'm trying to say to you. The soul that sins, it shall die. The son does not bear the iniquity of his father. Do you hear that? When you grow up, God is not holding you responsible for what your parents did. Listen to me. Neither does the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous belongs to him. The wickedness of the wicked belongs to him. Every person is responsible for his own choice. And every person is accountable for the choice that he makes. God created us with volition. When he created the man and woman and placed them in the garden, he, he, he gave them access to all the trees in the garden, all the fruits of the trees they could surely eat, save the one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The day that they ate thereof, God said, you will surely die. They were perfectly free to choose. God gave us, we're created with volition. Somebody says, I know what volition is. Volition is the right to choose for yourself. Volition is more than just the right to choose. It is the responsibility to choose. You have to choose. And it is the accountability that follows. God said, every man shall give account of himself before God. Now, what does that mean? Do I have five more minutes? That's good. Watch me do 30 minutes of material in five minutes. What does that mean? It means if you're a high school or college age student, You grew up in a home with a father and a mother who know God, who honor God, who worship God, who serve God. You've always been taken, you've always been taught, you've always been there, but you have have your other life when you're away, when you're at school, when you're at college. and, And something happens and unfortunately, Unfortunately, your life comes to an untimely end. And you find yourself standing before God. What are you going to say to God? Lord, you know my parents. You know my parents. We, 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 we were part of that, that church. 
We were part of that church. If you looked on the bulletin board, our pictures were there, right there with everybody. You, you know my parents. My dad, he, he was one of the first members of that church. My dad, he laid blocks on that building when it was first going. My dad, he was in deacon. My dad, he was Bible class. My dad, you know my mom. My mom, was, she taught those children's class. I'm telling you, my mom cooked more food for, for sick people and, and helped folks. And you know my I know your mom and dad, God's going to tell you. I know your mom and dad. I'm not talking to your mom and dad talking to you. I want to know about your life. I'll tell you something, folks. There's not a one of us, not one of us, who's going to go to heaven riding in on the coattails of our parents. Not one. Tell you something else. Works the same way for husbands and wives. Well, I'll tell you, the little lady, I, I, don't, I don't get to church much, but the little lady, she is always there. Well, bless your heart. Now, I'll tell you, when you pray tonight, you can thank God that you have a wife who honors God. But your wife doesn't go to church for you. And your wife doesn't study the Bible for you. And your wife does not serve God for you. There is no husband in the world who's going to go to heaven riding in on the coattails of his wife. And there's no woman going to heaven riding on the coattails of her husband. <clears throat> God looked at his people and he said, what kind of God do you think I am? Do you think I delight in the death of the wicked? I don't. I much prefer that the wicked would turn from his wicked way and live. I want to ask you something as we close today. What kind of God do you think we serve? You, you think of God as some big bully up in the sky. He's got this big club and he, he gave us all these, all, all these directions and instructions and commandments. And he's just waiting for us to make the first mistake. And he's going to take that club and just whack us with that. And we're going to make another mistake. He's going to hit us again and again and again. And you... No. God said, verse 23 of Ezekiel 18, Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, saith the Lord Jehovah? And not rather that he should return from his wicked way and live. But when the righteous turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and he does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, shall he live? God said, I want to tell you something. I get no delight out of seeing the wicked destroyed, but you need to know something. The wicked are not going to be saved because they used to be righteous. Do you see that? God said if the righteous turns away from righteousness and begins committing wickedness, he's going to die in that. Nobody's going to be saved because they used to be righteous. 
Okay, but here's the grace of the cross. Here's the good news. No righteous man is going to be lost because he used to be wicked. Aren't you glad? Just shake your head like that. Of course you are. Because I'm telling you this morning, that's the only hope we have. It's the only hope we have. And God said, every person is going to be responsible for himself. Think about that. Thank you so much for your good attention.